0: This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome to Sports Feed. My name's Sharpin. and I'll be your host for today. I'll be joined today by our regular pundits, Robert Morrissey, Ben Fleming, Harry Tanner, Luke Power and Ella Bicknell. We've got a packed show lined up for you today with National Football, Ella's Olympics, Fleming's Fighters, Robert's Rugby Roundup as well as Tanner's Tackles. As well as, as, well as of, of course, our regular feature, any other business. But first, the football. Now, let's talk about the big game this week. The big game, the Man City-Liverpool um, the Man City game. Do you agree with the assessment that Liverpool dominated the game with a new front four? And I'd like to go to Harry first on this one.
1: I don't think I would agree that they dominated the game. I think they certainly came out of the blocks uh, the faster of the two. I really liked their sort of their first 20 minutes. I thought they looked aggressive. Um, definitely, yeah, the approach from Jurgen Klopp to use this formation now, it's almost 4-2-4. In attack to to slot the uh, to sort of slot the informed Jota in there along with Firmino. Um, definitely, I think there were periods to start the game where they did look the better of the two sides. But I think as it went on, I thought uh, you know they lacked that that creativity. It didn't create um, you know that many chances from there. And I think uh, in the second half, I think Manchester City were probably the slightly more comfortable of the two teams, even if they uh, you know didn't didn't create much to show for it. Um, and yeah, so yeah, the second of the game, I thought uh no, yeah I don't think Liverpool dominated as such certainly.
0: Luke, do you agree with Harry's statement?
2: Yeah, it's this sort of game that, uh, let's compare it to a firework. You see it in Tesco's on the shelf and it looks like an absolute firecracker. And then you set it off and it's just not that exciting at all once it's halfway up in the air. I mean, absolutely, uh, Harry's very right. The first half, I mean, personally, as a Liverpool fan, very exciting to watch. I thought it was really good end-to-end stuff. Um I thought De Bruyne in particular had a brilliant game drifting wide onto the right from the centre for Man City, putting some really good balls in the box. And, you know, Juan Jesus several times looked like he could get on the end of them and eventually uh, he, he did get a goal. But it was really frustrating moving into the second half. And I think it also raises a question again further about Firmino recently. With only one goal in 12 games this season, he was subbed at the hour mark for Shakiri who hardly gets any minutes for Liverpool, which is maybe indicative of a shifting in Klopp's mentality. I'm not sure if everyone would agree. I mean, Klopp said that at full time he, he's really confident in Firmino. But I think that question is now coming to the surface. Robert, what do you
0: make about Luke's statement about Klopp maybe making a change in his assessment of his players?
3: See, I think uh, the formation was defensively a masterstroke. I think he did really well having those, having kind of, for the most part in the first half, Salah and Firmino playing as two strikers really kind of nullified the threat that Rodri and Gundogan play at being able for City to move the ball forward. It meant that we had to kind of push City out where they're not as comfortable playing. They like to kind of play relatively centrally and progress the ball quite quickly. And it kind of stopped that from happening because of the kind of way that we managed to be compact, Liverpool managed to be compact and kind of press. But I do think that's what it is. I think Firmino's always been used as that kind of like a... Uh, kind of sometimes a cop out answer that he doesn't score, but kind of like a defensive forward, and that's what he's really built around that kind of pressing system, and it worked brilliantly in this game. However, I do think he needs to be scoring more goals, and as Luke said as well, though I think, especially in the second half, it was kind of an undoing because having those four there, we really lacked creativity in the midfield just having Wijnaldum and Henderson there. Even though I thought they both had very good games there needs to kind of be creativity there so i think he was trying to get jota in there and defensively it worked really well especially in the first half but going forward when we weren't being able to kind of hit on the counter and play those balls over and hope for city defenders to make a mistake it was a bit of an issue
0: so robert who would you have instead of uh instead of uh firmino in that number 10 role who would you want to have in that position
3: see i'd play um I think I'd just play a front three at the moment, given form of Mane, Jota and Salah. But have it so that they can have that fluidity in attack so that they can change positions mid-game. Because all three of them can play through the centre and all three of them can play out wide. I think it's once you have a midfield where you've got a bit more creativity, once Thiago's back especially. you know. And I think if we have Thiago back and Fabinho can actually play midfield as opposed to centre-back if Matip still fit... You have enough creativity there to play this really quite high attacking, very attack oriented attack instead of a playmaking one, which is what Firmino plays. You can just have three attackers play, which is what I think I'd rather see at the moment.
0: The score, Ben. The score into that one one. Do we think that Man City deserved the point, And did their goal go against a run of play?
4: Yeah, I think I think it was a I think it was a fair result in the end. Um, I think one more was pretty fair. You know, we said City um, Liverpool came out the blocks. Um, that bit, that bit, that bit stronger. But I think I think City would sort of deserve that point. If I could just um pop in on that Firmino debate, I agree with sort of what, what Rob's saying. I think what we saw earlier in in Liverpool's sort of mid mid-mid midfield, especially last year, is it was a very industrious midfield and it was sort of keep keep the midfield solid and then Firmino was sort of that creative link between Firmino and Salah. What we're seeing now is, especially when Thiago gets back. Henderson's playing further forward and giving a bit more creativity. Is that Firmino doesn't need to be that link anymore, and in fact, what 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 you need out Firmino is him to score the goals. And as 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 Luke said, one one goal in his last twelve games. I think he's certainly not doing that. Um, so yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Um, the game as a whole, I think, yeah, pretty pretty uneventful. I think it's still two teams that are um, coming up to full match fitness after after the sort of delayed delayed um, end of last season missing missing a few key, key key pairs and also two sides that sort of don't want to lose normally in these in these games you see them sort of going gun-ho at each other but i think both both of these th- these these sides are sort of happy to play sort of cautious and conservative and just you know settle for not losing rather than necessarily going out and trying to win
0: you all mentioned diego Jotter and obviously he's made a big impression since joining from wolves forcing his way into the starting lineup Do you believe all of you, I'm going to ask all of you this question, do you believe that he will make a lasting impression at Liverpool or will he end up like André Alsharvin at Arsenal?
2: Uh, Let's go to Luke first. Absolutely, yes. I mean, he scored seven goals already and I was actually at Mo Salah's first ever Liverpool game where he uh, trounced Wigan in a pre-season friendly and he's playing in such a similar way to those kind of early salad days where, where he settled in really, really well. And he's gained the respect of his teammates. And that's something that's really really important. When you come into that dressing room, are people going to trust you? Are they going to start passing you the ball? Because ultimately you, you can't win the ball back all the time for yourself. You're really relying on being a part of that front three or front four, being a respected part of it. And that's where I think he he's really succeeding at the moment. I think also he shows he can play all across that front line. And I think that's a really useful tool as well, because we've seen Salah recently has been phenomenal leading the line. And I don't think he has been in previous seasons. I think he's always been really good cutting in from the wing. But I'm likening uh, Jota to Salah in that way. And I think stick him cent- centrally, stick him out wide, and he still has the same impact, because he's able to make those diagonal runs, get on the back of defenders, and uh, he's pretty good on the ball himself. So. I think he's a very well-rounded attacker.
0: Uh Harry, what do you make of that assessment? Do you agree that Jot will make a big will continue to make a big impact to Liverpool?
1: Yeah, no, I I do agree with Luke. Obviously, you know, it, it might be too early to say he's only been he's only been in the club for a few months and you know, he likened him perhaps to the fate of Andrea who, of course, had that very fast start Arsenal and scored uh scored those four goals against Liverpool and then from there kind of fizzled out a little bit. But uh I think, you know, Arshaven and Jota are very different situations. Our Arshaven joined Arsenal, you know, at much sort of later stage in his career. I think he was about 28 by the time he was there. Whereas Jota, you know, in, in, in very young years now, I think he's only 22, 23. I mean, I might be wrong. Feel free to correct me on that one, guys. But, uh, you know, he's got he's got the peak, uh, peak years ahead of him. He's only going to get better. And I think, uh, as, as Luke said, he's shown to be adaptable. And I think he's quite a complete player as it is. You know, he, he's, he's he's quick, he's agile. Um, He's a good dribbler on the ball. And also what he's got as a nose for a goal. And at a young age, I think that's incredibly important. If you can get into the box and find, pick up the right positions and uh, get on the end of crosses, which, uh, you know, of course, Liverpool have an abundance coming from uh, Alexander-Arnold, who unfortunately did pick up an injury yesterday, and uh, and Robertson, I think, um, you know, he'll prove to be a very useful addition to that Jurgen Klopp side. And uh, I, I, I can see him definitely kicking on and being very, very crucial um, as the years go on.
0: Robert, do you agree with this? Or is there, is he is he... Or are you one of the sceptics around Jota?
3: I'm, I'm not. I do. I, I would like to disagree to make it slightly more interesting. But no, I, I do agree with them. I think, as Harry just kind of mentioned there, the biggest thing to kind of look at and see, no, he, he actually really probably will succeed, is the positions he takes up. It's clearly the way he can read the game and intercept with those players. And he's young, like Harry said. He's playing day in, day out with some of the greatest players in the world. And he's clearly got talent. I think for him to fail, it would have to be something in himself, something mental probably that could restrict him. But there's not really been any signs of that. You know, it's not like how you know Origi is really form based. He, you know, he'll go on a stretch of scoring a load of goals and then he won't do anything. At the moment, so far, and I know it's early, but we've seen a consistent kind of desire from him and an intelligence whilst he plays. Which tells me he probably will succeed in some capacity. Whether he's going to be the next Sadio Mane or Mocella, I'm not sure. But I do think he'll succeed in some way.
0: I mean, I have to disagree with all three of you on the basis that he wasn't even the top striker at Wolves, was he? I mean Raul Jimenez is the top striker at Wolves.
4: If I could if I could come in there quickly on that, because I was gonna mention that. I think what you saw a lot in um, in his wolves. Um, career is that he often, as you say, Jimenez was the main man. And he was very much forced to move around. If you look at his goals, he only scored seven in the first in Premier League, nine in the second. Um, he was often shunted out to the left as part of a three. Um, sometimes, if they played a two up front, he moved as part of that as part part of the two. He played a lot of games off the bench. You had someone like um, Adama Traore started on the right, and he, he, as you said, he wasn't that main man, which I don't think is a problem. Like He's certainly not going to be that main man at Liverpool. What I think he'll get is a consistent starting position, even if that's off the bench or, or starting on up. He'll get a consistent tactical system, whether that be the 4-2-3-1 or, or the 4-3-3, but certainly the same sort of ideas. He's also going to be playing in a far more attacking system. I know like Wolves have done well, but a lot of it is based on being sort of very solid and they don't, they don't tend to score a whole lot of goals. I think... I think he will be. I think, I think he'll, he'll, he'll be a solid addition. I think it is too early to say whether he'll get up to sort of the Salah or Mane heights. But I, I, I don't think he's going to get down as a bad signing.
0: OK, let's now talk about the moment I've been dreading since yesterday, the Arsenal-Aston Villa result. How can Arsenal go from beating Man United one week to losing to a side like Villa playing exactly the same team as they did? I mean, I just don't get it. It confounds belief.
2: I mean, Luke, what's your take on this? I mean, Arsenal just weren't clinical enough in front of goal or even creating enough chances. I mean, they only had two shots on target, which is the same that they had in the United game. So you could argue that maybe they got lucky in the United game. I thought they did put in a good performance last week. And, of course, they got the big win against Mulder in midweek. But, I mean, what we've seen against Aston Villa is really disappointing. I wonder if they've restricted themselves slightly in deploying Kieran Tierney in this left centre-back position because at Celtic, he was absolutely phenomenal bombing down as a left-back. And I think that he can really bring a dynamic element. And I'm not going to criticise the rest of the team. Of course, Saka and Bellerin themselves are very adept and good on the ball. And I think positionally aware, aware enough um, when you've got three at the back covering for them. But I really think that that's restricting them. And another thing I think as well, we have to give a lot of credit to Aston Villa, who swarmed the box at times, really ran the midfield show. And I'm sure we'll get onto that in a moment.
0: I mean, Harry, what what, would you, what, how can Arsenal go from lo- winning one game against Man United to losing a game against Aston Villa? I just don't get it. What's your take on it?
1: Well, I think maybe... You've got to look at the opposition and perhaps we've got to say that Aston Villa are a bit better than Manchester United at the moment. It might very well be down to that. I think uh, certainly if you just compare those two teams for a second, I think Aston Villa look like they've understood their system better. You know, they know what they're doing more. Whereas Manchester United, that midfield is a bit of a mess with Oli trying to work out whether he wants to play a diamond or a three in midfield. So Aston Villa, you know, they know what they're doing. I think Dean Smith has got, all the, got the players he wants and they're playing the style of football he he needs them to. They looked absolutely fantastic yesterday. I think it was magnificent from all of those players. So I think we've got to give Aston Villa credit there. And, you know, I think Arsenal's defeat may not necessarily be down to, uh, you know, a slightly poorer performance, but more just the uh, the level of opposition. Maybe, uh, maybe that was better than last week. Uh, but looking at Arsenal for a second, I do think, um, you know, the system that Arteta has been playing in recent weeks, that 3-4-3 three, three really restricts them in terms of their creativity, um, you know, two, as, uh, as Luke mentioned, two shots on target the week before, two shots on target this week. You're not going to score any goals in this, in this league if you're going to be playing football like that. And I think uh, you know the midfield two of Partey and El Nani, you know, they're very industrious and combative. You know, they're not going to be finding that killer ball that uh, Mr. Ozil might have done had he been in the, squ- had been in the squad. Um, and even off the bench, I think Danny Sabayas is slightly mistaken for a creative player. I think he's a fantastic uh, dribbler on the ball. But if you look at his key passes over the years, he's not someone who necessarily is going to uh, create chance after chance. I think that system that Arsenal are playing, that's just too much uh, based on Aubameyang at the moment. They're asking him to do far too much. Um, I know he scored a goal against Fulham on the first day of the season where he got it on his left, on the, on the left-hand side, cut inside, and put it in the right top-hand right corner. But I think uh, that's all they can ask from him at the moment. There's no one playing the ball in behind to him. He's not. You know, that was the first game I think uh, that he's ever not had a shot for Arsenal. Um, Last uh, last last night, so I think uh, that proves that they're not feeding him the ball enough in good positions. And uh, I think for Arsenal to make any strides forward, they're definitely going to have to work out a system that gives them the balance, um, you know, defensively, but also allows them to create some chances.
0: Robert Harry mentions the uh, uh form and his uh, struggle against uh, Aston Villa. Do you would you agree with him that his his downturning fortunes is due to the lack of creativity at Arsenal?
3: I think it could be, but I think he should be. or just on like kind of just basically looking at it. It should be a system that should suit him to a degree. If he can play on the left, in between, you know, he doesn't have to supply the width because you've got, you know, Saka was playing at left back uh, or the left midfield uh, against uh, Villa. You know, that should be supplying the width there. So Aubameyang can play in between the fullback and the centre half and try and find those channels of getting behind and score. That should be what's happening. But like they've been saying, there's not got that creativity to feed balls in or from behind or whatever. I do think that is an issue. But also, he has to take some personal responsibility. You know, it's, it's not like he's when he's been shooting, he's been scoring. Now, he didn't shoot in this game at all, and you could say that's kind of because of a, a dearth of creativity. But when he has been in recent games, he hasn't been scoring then either. So I think it also might, you could put it down to a personal thing with him, or you could put it down to a system, but I think it'll probably have to be a mix of both.
0: Okay, Ben, do you agree with that assessment of Robert's?
4: Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one from Aubameyang. I think he he has, you know, we mentioned, well, Robert mentioned that width that Saka provides. I think, for me, he's sitting far too far out on the left. If you think of Mane and Salah, the way they're sort of wingers, you know, wingers in terms of how they appear on the team sheet, but they sit so narrow on the pitch, and and I think he's really got to sit narrow, much much like Rashford. The start of this season was playing really out wide, and has sort of moved further inside. I think that's where he's doing his best work. I think also there's so there's such a one dimensional um, element to their play in that it's just get the ball. It's either it's either Willian to cross it to Bamang or it goes straight to Bamang. And people are just re- the team's just realizing that people are just you know too getting getting two people to mark a taking him out of the game. And, you know, when he's when he's he's not really got that sort of dribbling ability of a Mane or a sad sort of beta man. Um so I think I think really Arsenal sort of plan to get the best out of Aubameyang has largely been found out. Um so it's a really it's a really weird one for Arteta. I think I agree with Harry's point about um, El Nene and and party, I think that's far too negative, even against an Aston Villa side that has, that has looked you know, great at the start of the season. But yeah, I think there's there's you know, certainly need to return to the drawing board for Artessa because at the minute, they're really not creating enough chances.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with you. I feel that Arsenal just aren't creating the chances. And if you're not creating the chances, you're not going to score the goals. Um, let's talk about Villa, though. What a season they're having. Do we think they've got one of the most underrated midfields in the Premier League?
2: Uh, Luke, let's go to you. I mean, are they underrated anymore? Because they, they've they really hit the ground running. And I think people have realised now, especially Jack Grealish. I mean, there's been so much talking about him, but Ross Barkley seems to be a transformed man because in recent years, he's been, I would say, by and large, quite disappointing, where he's all, always verged on having a lot of talent. But since his breakthrough at Everton, he's never really realised it. But I think finally he's working really well as a focal point in a team where they absolutely value him. He's no longer a a fish in a a big pond. He's in a bit of a smaller pond at Villa at the moment. And they're all playing for each other. And it's probably not something that we saw last season with Aston Villa. They, They brought in a lot of imports who probably didn't adjust as well as they should and they didn't have a coherent way of playing. But I think we really see now, front to back, what a solid core that is with Mings. You've got McGinn. You know, they, they, they transition really well. Mings, I think, is really good ball playing centre-back and picking him out. He progresses forward. You've got Barkley, Grealish. And just to top it off, finally a striker who can actually score for Aston Villa in Ollie Watkins. I mean, 26 goals last season. And he was first to every ball. And I think that's something that has really characterised their performance this season. Because, I mean, they're not great at retaining possession or anything. There, They have among the lowest possession stats in the league. But what Aston Villa can do is fight for every ball, and it sounds very basic. But yesterday, when they put their crosses in the box, they were beating the Arsenal defenders to it and getting room for themselves. So I think they just do a lot of the basic things really, really well.
0: Harry, do you agree with Luke that the Aston Villa team uh, midfield is now no, no, now longer, no longer underrated?
1: I think they're certainly trending in that direction. Definitely, um, I think it might take a few more of those performances for us to really start looking at them. You know, among some of the best in the uh, in the division. But uh definitely, you know, if you if you beat uh, Liverpool seven two and then Arsenal three, that's not to be uh not to be sniffed at at all. I think I really like the balance they have in the mid- mid- midfield at the moment. I think it's interesting they're playing with a four two three one, which you know four or five years ago. But now we're looking at you know the Klopp and the Guardiola teams which are definitely more of a 4-3-3. And I think lots of other teams, Lampard's team have now adopted that at Chelsea. And I think Oli has certainly tried to play at a time, Manchester United. So I think that's quite interesting to see that more, well, I say throwback style, you know, certainly uh, not that that old, but definitely there's good, with McGinn and Douglas Luiz is playing a kind of double pivot role. Um, you know, I thought they were both magnificent yesterday. Um, and then on top of that, you do have the creativity from Barkley and Grealish, And I think Trezeguet is, is a hard worker as well. And I think... Uh, He's certainly doing a decent job on the on the right hand side as well, but definitely they play with great purpose, great pace as well. We saw time and time again they were running at the Arsenal defence and they had no idea what to do with it. They were very direct with their runs, um, and there was just a nice link up. You know, from have pretty quickly, A fantastic understanding with each other. Um, you know, there were lots of one twos between them yesterday, um, and all of them can pick a pass as well. Um, you know, there was, I think it was the uh, the first Watkins goal. Beautiful pass, I think it was by Douglas Louise, you know, diagonal ball. Barkley first time volley, and then a Watkins header. Um, if, you know, if they can keep playing football like that, I'd certainly agree with Luke. They'll be uh, they won't be underrated for much longer if they are anymore.
0: Ben, Harry, and Luke both mentioned Ollie Watkins. Do you think he's one of the signings of the summer?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I certainly got a lot of um, time to see him last season. Um, my team were the championships, so yeah, he, it's a weird one because um, obviously they had Neil Mopay at Brentford. For a couple of seasons, who played up front, and Ollie Watkins largely spent a lot of his time on the left or the right wing. It was only really last season that he truly became this sort of out-and-out striker. Uh, in terms of value for money as best signing, I think I think it's difficult to look past him at this stage. I mean, 23 million, I think a lot of people scoffed at that at the start of the season. You know, he, this, this really was, or his last season in the Championship really was his first season where he really, everything came together, and he was that main man. But I think, especially in terms of if you're looking at how it's improved a team, I don't think there's any signing that has improved a team as much as Watkins. I like, you know they had Wesley, who, who who for the first six months was serviceable, um, and then they had Samata after Wesley injured his ACL, who was uh, well. I think I think Villa fans would, would largely forget him. I think I think their, their official statement on their website when when they sold him was about two lines. Um, I think that basically says about what we need to know on his contribution. But I think Watkins has really upgraded them more than any other signing has. He gives him gives him that that link. His hold up play is underrated. That athleticism to go into those channels and to allow Barkley and and and, and Trezeguet Grealish to get inside. I think it's a great signing.
0: Moving on to Chelsea, they beat Sheffield United four one in a comprehensive performance by the West London side. However, I'm still convinced unconvinced by Lampard as a manager. What do you think, Robert?
3: Yeah, I can see why you would be. I, Lampard at the moment kind of reminds me a bit of Ancelotti. He has kind of good players and he's playing them in the way that they kind of, it kind of fits them. And it's a system that's, I don't, it's the thing, I don't even know if you can really call it a system or he's just got good players playing all right, you know. And I think, I think that is going well. They're, they're winning. They have a very good team. You know, Timo Werner is a really good player. Kai Havertz is starting to get more in there. They've got a brilliant team and it's playing well. However, he doesn't kind of have that systemic kind of plan like a. you kind of think of the top managers in the Prem like Guardiola or Klopp or Bielsa. But yeah, I don't think he needs to do that either to be a great manager. Mourinho does have a very good system, but it's nowhere near to the kind of almost philosophical levels of the, of the other managers where they've really thought about how they want to play. So I'm not sure because I think he, motivation-wise, I reckon he's probably a very good manager. You know, he's a kind of—he wasn't the actual captain Chelsea, but definitely a leader for for a decade. And I think he kind of has that. You know, he is a superstar and a modern superstar that all the players are going to know, so they'll have that respect. So in a way, motivating, I reckon, he'd be very good at that. When it comes to his tactical nous, I'm not too sure, but I'm also not sure whether he needs to because he's got a backroom staff for that as well.
0: Uh, Harry, do you agree with Robert's assessment of uh, Frank Lampard?
3: I can understand why people will be unconvinced.
1: And, you know, I'm a massive Chelsea fan myself, and I think there's certainly a long way to go. But, you know, we must not forget this is only Frank Lampard's third full season in management. He had one season at Derby, he had one season last year with Chelsea, and then this is the next one. So he's extremely inexperienced. He's practically learning on the job, really. While someone like Arteta, who's at Arsenal, and will be definite comparisons between the two, has had time to grow and mould himself as a manager under. Guardiola or, or someone like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who, again, another point of comparison being a, another former player, player now managing you know the club that they made their name at, um, had you know he had plenty of time at Mulder and then at Cardiff for a while as well, where he was albeit quite unimpressive. So Frank Lampard, I think there definitely will be question marks, but I think he just needs time to develop. The idea of not having a system that, uh, that Robert mentioned, I think it's slightly unfair because I think it's something he's starting to develop. I think in the last few weeks, he's now shown that he wants to be playing very aggressive, attacking football with one holding number six has been gola Conte in the last few weeks and then two attacking number eights who I think he in time wants to use Mason and Kai Havertz there but Mateo Kovacic played there on the weekend but definitely I think it's going to be t- take time for Lampard but from what we've seen he wants to play attractive football and he's committed to that Chelsea have scored you know, plenty of goals in the last few games and what he has done a big criticism of Lampard and I think a r- large reason for why people were unconvinced was can he bring defensive solidity but they've done in the last few games you know, they've had plenty of clean sheets yesterday. I think they had six in a row or four, was it five in a row and then they were going for the sixth and then, uh, they did ultimately concede against Sheffield United. But, you know, it's something that Chelsea have worked on and Frank Lampard has started to answer these questions that are being asked of him. I think uh, what Lampard has over nearly every manager at the moment, it seems, is this kind of pull. You know, Robert mentioned what a great, uh, what a legend he is. You know, every every player that Chelsea signed the summer, you know, attributed that largely to wanting to play under Frank Lampard. He was someone that they looked up to when they were a youngster um, and you know why? Why wouldn't you want to play for one of the greatest midfielders uh, of all time? Perhaps so. I think definitely there, there are questions to be answered. But I think so far Frank Lampard has passed with flying colours. Last season he had a transfer ban and he still put Chelsea in the top four at Derby. You know he did a pretty solid job. He didn't do too much wrong. Um, I think the biggest question I'll I'll, I'll just leave for uh, for everyone else about to answer is you know he's had he's been in two finals. He was in the player fight final at Derby and the FA Cup final last year. He he lost both of the, both of those games. So perhaps the idea of developing tactical now. So I'll, ask, I'll pose that to everyone, whether that's uh, maybe what people aren't convinced about at the moment.
0: Luke, what do you make of uh, Harry's comments about tactical now and Lampard?
2: I Very, very tricky, I think, because I, I do agree that he hasn't developed a, a tactical philosophy, but he's also taken this mishmash of young players throughout his career and managed to transform them into really, really worthy talents. Mason Mount, uh, Fikayo Tamori that absolutely shone. Uh, Pulisic, Tammy Abraham, Reese James has emerged in the right-back position. So I think it's really unfair. He's been relying on this core of younger players and that's something that's so un-Chelsea-esque that those Stamford Bridge faithful have been pining for for years for all of the youth competitions that they win to not promote any of their academy graduates into the team. So I think what we will see is... Whatever this philosophy will be, I think Harry's right, it's looking to be more and more attacking. We're going to see that really emerge because these are going to be younger players who've spent some time together in the youth system, who know each other, who have some sort of telepathic connection that you do get when you play with somebody for a number of years. And I think we will begin to see that emerge. I think he's had two good seasons in management so far. Going into the Championship with Derby County, people say, "Oh, they should be in the playoffs every year, they should be getting promoted. There are absolutely no guarantees in the championship or in any league, but in the championship, you can get Sunderland looking like they're going to be the strongest team in the league and come last. So I think he did really well at Derby last season, as Harry said, with, with the uh, transfer ban, done phenomenally well. And I think he's been quite decisive in replacing Kepper with Eduard Mendy, who I hadn't really seen a lot of before he came to Chelsea, but... One goal conceded in the last six games, I think, speaks for itself that they now have sorted out, hopefully for them, this goalkeeping issue that they have. And they they have that trust between the centre-backs and the goalkeeper. And when you've established that trust, then you can start thinking about playing out from the back. Then you can start moving into the attacking positions more. So, I think there will be positive things to come for Chelsea.
0: Let's move on to their opposition that they faced, Sheffield United. Sheffield United look like they're lacking inspiration. Do, Robert, do you think they will go down?
3: Short answer, yes. Long answer, yes. I, 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 I don't really think there's much they can do. Like you said, they do seem to be lacking inspiration. I think tactically last season, they were this weird kind of revelation of, oh, they're playing overlapping centre-backs. It's all quite entertaining. you know. But they were solid. That was kind of the, the core of the team was a defensive solidity and a real fighting uh, kind of dogged spirit. And they seem to have lost that, definitely lost the defensive solidity. They've not looked solid all season. The system just doesn't seem to be working as much anymore. And I don't think the motivation's really there. So at the moment, given their current performances, I don't see a way of them not coming bottom, to be honest.
0: Does anyone agree with uh, Robert's assessment or do you dis- does anyone disagree?
3: Yeah, I disagree in that
4: I... Don't think they'll come bottom. I think, I think, I think, I think I've seen nothing in Fulham and West Brom to suggest that they won't be scrapping it out for twentieth and nineteenth. Um, Sheffield United, I think they could still stay up. I will admit, I'm, I, I did, I did, I did think they'd be all like fine this season. I thought maybe sort of like twelfth to fifteenth. Um, I do think it's going to be a lot more difficult. But you've got Bruce just starting to come into that team. I do think the point about that sort of not that sort of tactical novelty wearing off. Um but I think they have been unlucky in some games. Uh I think I think they might just about scrape through, but I'm not confident.
0: The last game I want to talk about is Leicester Wolves. Leicester won to go top of the Premier League. Do you think they can go all the way like they did previously?
2: Luke. Am I going to end up presenting Match the Day in my underwear? Um, <laughs> to be honest, I, I don't want to be a, a mood killer. I don't think they will. I think it's far too early to say in the season. Absolutely being unbeaten at this stage is... I know they're not unbeaten, are they? They've lost two games, so we'll scrap that. I mean, they've won six of their eight games this season. Um, but I... I for whatever reason, I just don't think it's going to happen. I don't have, have anything particularly grand to say. I think the way they fizzled out towards the end of last season was really, really worrying. And so, huge credit to Brendan Rogers for turning them around because I was fearing, for, I thought they'd be stuck around eighth position this season. So, I'm really impressed with how they've begun. And it's good that they're still somehow managing to exploit Jamie Vardy, despite him being about 5,000 years old now. Uh, he's still running as fast as ever and they're still managing to get the ball to him. Uh, But yeah, I don't know what everyone else thinks, but for me, I don't think they will finish in the top three or four. I mean, mean,
0: Jamie Vardy always makes me laugh because he looks like a bloke who should be serving shots outside outside Marbella, but that's another thing entirely. Um, Robert, do you agree with uh, uh, Luke's assessment?
3: Yeah, I do, do, especially especially because of Luke, talking about Jamie Vardy, I think their biggest issue is they just don't have depth. If Vardy gets injured, you know, Ian Acho played very well in Europe, actually, but he's not good enough, really, I don't think, for a team to to definitely win the league. If Telemans gets injured, who's replacing him in the midfield? You know, is, is Chowdhury, he's probably not good enough to, to play that role. And especially if one of the centre-backs gets injured, Seon or, or Johnny Evans, they're, you know, what are they going to do? That's my biggest concern and the biggest reason why I think they won't win the league. You know, could scrape fourth place, but definitely won't win the league Is because they just don't have depth.
0: Wolves, despite this loss, have had a really good start to the season. Ben, what would you attribute this down to?
4: Well, I, I'm I'm not so sure they have had the best start. Certainly not as good a start as perhaps they've had in previous seasons. They've only scored. I mean, they're a team that don't score too many goals. As it is, they've only scored. I think I think think they're averaging a goal a game at the minute. They've lost Jota, Adama Traore. I I don't know for whatever reason does doesn't doesn't seem to be playing as much or having the same influence on games they've lost Doherty and I don't I think you know we talked about that Sheffield United novelty wearing off I don't think that's quite the same with the Wolves and they're still in a in a very good position you know in the table but I don't think they will get European football I think from what I've seen from Southampton from what I've seen from Leicester I think those teams are looking more attackingly fluent I think you're what you're always going to see from Wolves, and especially under um Santos, is very well drilled defensively. And they're not they're not going to ship many goals. You know, they only let in one against Leicester, albeit Bod did miss the penalty. But I think the uh the loss of Jota, the loss of Doherty and, and I think teams are starting to to figure out ways to get at them a bit more. I, I think I don't I don't think it's gonna be as good a season um for them as they've had the previous two seasons, even if they have started you know
0: well enough, Harry. Do you agree with Ben's assessment that they've started? They haven't started that well at all.
1: No, no, no. I, I completely disagree with that. Actually, I think as surprising as it may sound, I think before yesterday's game, it had actually been Rawls' best start to a Premier League season. So, um, you know, in their last three three campaigns, which the since they've been promoted from the Championship, so as, I think as often, I think that surprised me when I heard that. Certainly, I think you know, for as good as their teams have been, they've actually not been the best starters to a season, and they've got better as it has gone on. So I think that's quite a promising sign for them, and I would attribute that largely down to, to you know the experience of having played with each other in the same system for you know for quite a long time now. They've recruited very well, and they've also they've held on to some of their best players as well. I know Jato has now gone to uh, to Liverpool, but you know, despite interest from Real Madrid and. Arsenal and Manchester United. Ralph Jimenez is still leading the line for them. Adama Traore is still there. And we mentioned that he's not playing as much. I think he's still always an player off the bench. And also just looking at their defence, Willy Bolly and Connor Cody. And they've now added Max Kilman, um, you know, a youngster into those ranks. And I think having played that system, they're more experienced. they play with each other for a number of years. Ruben Neves is still there in the middle of the parks now. I think he's an extremely underrated player. Um, and I think, you know, Nuno is just going to get better and better as a manager. Um, so that's definitely, I think, my my reason behind that. And I think as the season goes on, I think they will be one to watch. I mean, I don't know if they will get into the top four, but I think they'll still be there and thereabouts. Um, you know, they're defensively solid, which is more than quite a lot of teams in this division can say. Um, I think scoring goals, like you know, like quite a few teams, though, is, is going to be their problem. But if you've got a, a man like Raúl Jiménez, he only needs a couple of chances to uh, to get on the score sheet. I think uh, I think they'll be all right.
0: And on that note, that finishes Sportsfeed's football
1: roundup. Thank you everyone.
0: I'm now going to be joined by Robert for Robert's Rugby Roundup, our renowned rugby expert. And Robert, let's start off with Australia. They beat New Zealand in the rugby championships. Give our listeners a brief overview of what happened in the game and who were the key players for each side.
3: Yeah, it was a really exciting game, quite shocking. You know, um, Australia had been beaten, I can't remember what it was, 42-5 just a week before, which was the biggest ever defeat to New Zealand and led to an um, 18-year eighteen-year loss of the Bledisloe Cup. So it was quite shocking. And this game was plagued by ill-discipline, really. Uh, both teams ended the game on 14 players. Ofer Tungafasi was sent off for New Zealand and Swinton were sent off for Australia, both in the first half. And they were both for very similar but separate events. They were both for high tackles where, you know, these players are both quite short and quite stocky, but they didn't get low enough and it was shoulder to the head, direct contact. They both got red cards. And this game really saw kind of a a tit for tat of the two teams just going back and forth the whole game, trying to edge it. New Zealand trying to play this newly revived, very free-flowing rugby that, you know, Richie Mwanga made his absolute own the other week. You know, he, he dominated the game because of that. But he didn't play this game. There was a lot of changes by both sides, six by Australia and five, I think, by New Zealand. And that was kind of an issue for New Zealand. They played Bowdoin Barrett in at... Um, at ten, And he just didn't really click with the free-flowing system how Mwanga had. He's a good player. He's a brilliant player. He's a brilliant fly-off. He's much more of a conventional test rugby player. You know, he'll get you the ground, he'll make the plays, but he won't be able to play off the cuff, which is how they're trying to play at the moment. So the game kind of went like that. Both teams' tries were very good. Richie Iwana got over as a response to Australia's first try when they scored and, and it, all, all of the, the tries were really, really, really good. good. But it, it was, was actually Australia, Australia just taking the points when they were on offer, that won off them the game. You know, they, they scored, the scored four penalties. And that How was due, you know, in large part, because New Zealand were very ill-disciplined in this game. And that's what won it for them. It was that just taking the points whilst they were on offer, whilst New Zealand used it as a chance to kick to touch and try and take penalties, take the lineups and try and score tries, because that's his new philosophy. Now, Geordie Barrett played very well played very the brother Bowden played very well for New Zealand um on the at full back. So he was probably New Zealand's key player. But I do think they stifled with creativity time because Richie Moanga didn't play like he did the week before and played incredibly well. But for Australia, it was weirdly all about uh Cur- Curibetti. He was actually got a yellow card. Um, in the second half because he had his feet off uh, the ground whilst he was contesting in the ruck, which is illegal and he got a yellow card for slowing the game down as New Zealand were breaking quite quickly but he played really well on the wing it was kind of a nuisance all game and it was his hit at the very end right on the buzzer pretty much that led to Australia winning the game effectively New Zealand had just scored there were two minutes to go they had the ball in around their 22 and Karabati just smacked Jordi Barron causing him to knock it on they get a scrum and then they kick the ball out after that for the full time. So he was probably the key man, pretty much just because of that, just because of that error. But yeah, it was a really fascinating game, really intriguing game, especially given what we'd seen the week before. And you yeah, yeah. You mentioned yeah.
0: Foden Barrett. Where would you play him then? Is he not good enough to fit in this New Zealand side?
3: No, yeah, I think he plays at fullback. I think he dislodges his brother. You could play Jordy Barrett on the wing potentially. Even though I think you've got you've got New Zealand have better wingers. But I think he does better there when he doesn't have to control the game and he can run those lines from deep. He can use the boot as well from, from, a, from a further back position. And you have I've been really impressed by Richie Mwanga. I think he was really underutilised in the World Cup because <clears throat> New Zealand wanted to play this kind of test, you know, kind of traditional test rugby, which is actually weirdly how Australia won this game. But New Zealand wanted to play that in the World Cup and it just didn't suit the core of all-black players. And that's the issue with Bowden Barrett playing there. But I think you have to play him at fullback. And I think at fullback, he does have much more of an impact on the game.
0: Do we think that Australia can challenge the All Blacks in future games? Or was this a one-off special performance? It's not going to happen. It's once in a blue moon sort of thing.
3: It doesn't have to be a once in a blue moon thing, but I think it probably will be. They, like I just mentioned then, kind of inferred, Australia are trying to play kind of quite a traditional test rugby kind of way. Take the points when it's on offer, kick a fair bit, try and use your forwards to dominate, and it worked. It did, but and it's kind of the way South Africa just won the World Cup that it was that simple, down to basics. We will bully you, and then we will take the points. But Australia don't have the capacity to do that. Really, for a long time, you know, especially if they were to come up against an England, I think they'd really struggle and they'd be undone. This New Zealand side, yeah, they didn't play their best, yet they still almost beat them. This was two, there were two points in it, and if New Zealand kick all their kicks, you know, which they should do, they draw. You know, it was only because of a missed kick by Jordy Barrett that it actually ended up an, an Australia win. So yeah, I think especially the, the biggest issue is at fly half. They don't have a world class fly half, and if you really want to compete. You've got to have one. in New Zealand, Have a, even though I've just kind of slated bone and Barrett a bit, New Zealand have several world-class fly halves. I don't think Australia has one.
0: All of this comes after news that the All Blacks are up for, in quotes, up for sale. If southern hemisphere sides like New Zealand are struggling despite recovering best from COVID-19, then what will the impact of COVID-19 be on the northern hemisphere sides?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a really weird one because, was, as you said, they are recovering better from it, society-wide, but sport isn't. You know, we've kind of, in the Northern Hemisphere, kind of prioritised sport, made sure it's a thing that we will continue doing no matter what because of COVID-19. Whereas Australia New Zealand and South Africa completely shut down, They're completely shut down all sports. And I think that the biggest issue for the Southern Hemisphere was their club rugby is tied to other nations for the most part. You know, it's the super rugby. So they really struggle to get that kicking. Well, I know in the Northern Hemisphere we have it in the... Um, in the pro 14, but they managed to get that going. And I think it will have an impact on Northern hemisphere teams, but what a lot of Northern hemisphere teams have, which the um, Southern hemisphere don't, is that the players are owned and contracted to clubs, whilst in the Southern hemisphere, they're contracted to international or national unions, which means that when you're not playing for your club, you're getting paid by the union. Whereas, and I, I think Ireland do it and Wales were moving in that direction in the Northern Hemisphere. And there's a lot of reasons why you would do that. A lot of it's to do with trying to make the national team as best as possible. You have more control over your players. You don't have to let them play club rugby. You can have them for more time nationally. But when it comes to this kind of issue and the financial impact on the unions, England, England's rugby union doesn't have to pay the players. The clubs have to. So they're not kind of, they've not kind of got that windfall of money just pouring out with no revenue coming in. You know, the, the the RFU will be making losses, but it'll also but it won't be anywhere near what the um, the Southern Hemisphere ones are because they're all union based contracts, centralised contracts. But it will be a bigger concern for Ireland and for Wales, who I believe have central contracts. It'll be a bigger issue for them. However, you do have the fact that the Northern Hemisphere has played the Six Nations, which will get some money, and even though there isn't the stadium tickets, and the Autumn Nations Cup which should bring some needed funds in as well.
0: You mentioned the Autumn awesome Nations Cup. Now, have the Northern Hemisphere sides just come up with a new way of making TV money through this? What's your take on it, Robert?
3: Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, I, I completely think it is just a way for them to make money. I mean, it's it's a reaction a lot of the time to COVID-19. But I do think it's a, it's a way to get money. And that, that's not the worst thing in the world. Because at the end of the day, it is also expanding international rugby and getting some of the Tier 2 boys to play with the Tier 1 boys, which is what I think a lot of rugby fans have been asking for for a while. And if you're quite an optimistic rugby fan, you you might look at this and say, oh, yeah, no, they're, they're they're bringing people into the fold. That's really nice. But I think it's really disingenuous. I think, for one, Georgia are in it. The only reason Georgia are in it is because Japan had to withdraw, even though Georgia is two places higher ranked than Italy internationally who were involved because they're in the Six Nations. To me, that doesn't make sense. Georgia were clearly an afterthought, and I think that's quite poor. Because I think they should be in there. There should be a drive by World Rugby, by Mr Beaumont, to get the Tier 2 nations playing more with the Tier 1 nations, to try and expand international rugby. So I do think this is a money grab. And I don't think that should be like demonised particularly, because I think they also do need the money. And at the end of the day, it is getting Fiji and Georgia into the fold more. So it's not like it's a, a step backwards. It's definitely a step forward, but probably not a step forward as much as I'd like to see. It kind of reminds me of the Football Nations League. When you took glorified friendlies, gave it a competition to make a bit more money, you know, so you could package it a bit better. What my biggest fear for the Autumn Nations Cup is, if it continues on, which obviously it might not, it might do, we're not too sure how it's going to run, is its impact on Test Rugby. I think Test Rugby is brilliant. I think touring is brilliant. I think it's a unique quality that rugby and cricket have. And I think it's amazing. What I'd rather see is because I'd love to see the international game expand because there are nations there that are really rugby mad but are just not being given the chance. So instead of a nation's cup, what I'd love to see is rotating tours. So say... You have one team goes to the Pacific Islands, one goes to Australia, New Zealand, one goes to the Americas, one to Europe, one to Africa, one to Asia, and you rotate every year who goes out of the six nations. That's something I'd love to see more. So you can actually see proper games between tier one and tier two nations, instead of just cherry picking two tier two nations to then play with the six nations.
0: Yeah, I think the sad thing is is that it will continue after COVID nineteen is eventually over because of the fact it will bring in money and I think they will yeah, just be been- I think they will just essentially pick, the uh, drop Georgia when Japan is ready to return to the rugby fold.
3: Yeah, it'll be really hard for them to drop them though, I don't know, especially if Georgia can make a bit of an impact, that's what we kind of hope for, is that they will do that and I don't know if maybe they mould it a bit more, you know, if they try and expand it slightly to 10 teams, maybe, and try and work out a competition that way, but I'm really not sure, hopefully they can do something to get more people involved but I, I, I kind of share your pessimism to be honest.
0: Eddie Jones said on Sunday Saturday that he wants young players to show desperation in wanting to be picked for England. Which young players has he got lined up to be selected in the Autumn Nations Cup?
3: He's got quite a lot. Now it's more this this England squad's young anyway, so it's more who kind of the fringe players who's, who is because I think that's more who he's talking about. You've got Ollie Lawrence, who's a center for Worcester. And he's, he's been kind of making quite a bit of a storm. Only 21, 37 games to to 12 tries. That's a good return. And he's mainly there because Tua, like, he's injured. And he's similar to him. He's big, he's tall, he's quick, he's powerful. So I think he's definitely one to look at. Jacob Umarga is the big one for me to see if he gets any minutes because he's the the son of Mike Umarga who played like 13 times for, for Samoa. But also the nephew of Tanner Maga who played 74 times for the All Blacks. So this this kid's got incredible pedigree. He's 21, and in 17 games, he scored 97 points. That's brilliant, playing for Wasps. He's also spent time in New Zealand perfecting his craft. So I think he's definitely one to look at as well. But then in the forwards, the thing is, the, the really kind of... Those forwards that we looked at in the World Cup and thought, wow, you're really good, are all really young anyway. You know, Tom Curry... Ben Earle, Lewis Ludlam and Sam Underhill are all 24 or younger. So you've already got an incredible young core, but they're even bringing even more players in with Ted Hill and Jack Willis, who are both 21, both flankers. It's going to be difficult for them to get any games with the likes of who I've just said, at just flanker. But I think it's quite exciting because there are a lot of young players there who can really try and have a stab at it, especially in the first game against Georgia. You know that'll be where we'll see probably quite a few, if not debutants, you know, new players to the England fold getting a shot.
0: Switching codes to rugby league now. Wigan Warriors won the league leaders' shield on Friday. They haven't evidently had a great season, but what would you put this down to?
3: Yeah, I wasn't particularly happy about this. I'm a Warrington fan, and my dad's a Wigan fan. So when <laughs> when uh, Wigan won the, the the shield, I wasn't particularly happy. But I think it's mainly down to Adrian or Adrian Lamb. He's you know there were question marks over whether he could do it. You know because he took in, he it was a, um, he came in as a temporary solution, but he's continued. He's played really well. Well, managed, coached really well even. And I think they play basic rugby really well. You know they and they've got a really good team. I've written down here that there is a comparison you can make between Warrington and Wigan on Liverpool and Man City. Liverpool play like a very kind of brash high intense form of football a fair amount of the time and Warrington do that as well they take a lot of risks Warrington try and do as many offloads as they can Wigan don't they just play f- football or rugby kind of in its purest form of just playing how it's always kind of been played but just playing it really really well and that's kind of what Man City do with football to a degree and it's mainly because they just have brilliant players now Zach Hardacre, who was probably the best fullback in in the, in the league. I'd say it's Stephen Ratchford, but I'm incredibly biased. And then you've got players like Liam Marshall, who's a sensational winger. Bevan French, who scored pretty much a try a game and has just signed a new contract. Luay Luay, who just carries on being brilliant. And sensational players. And that's not even mentioning Hastings, who sadly might be leaving Wigan, but he's also brilliant. They just have... It sounds like a real cop out because it's not particularly tactical analysis. They just have a really good team, and they play the they play rugby league well, and it leads to them winning the majority of games. Even when they got the kids out against Saint Helens, I mean they got battered, but they they didn't look terrible. You know they didn't get battered any more than a whole KR would by Saint Helens.
0: Wigan unveiled a new club badge this week. What's your take on it? Have you seen
3: it? It's it's shocking. It's terrible. I mean, the massive joke is it looks like a red Starbucks logo, and it does. It's a horrid badge, in my opinion. It doesn't look good. And it's also getting rid of a badge that we're going to have had for years and has history behind it and has grand final wins with it. And I know, like, you know, for instance, Man City changed their badge, but it was changing their badge back to what it was. It strikes me of, like, uh, was it earlier this season, just before the Premier League season started, when Leeds United wanted to change their badge? Everyone, no, no, we're not going to have that. That's shocking. But they haven't had a choice in it, and it's been the sort of absolute ridicule in the rugby league community. I do, I just do think it's a really bad badge. And I'd, if I was a Wigan fan, I'd be quite annoyed.
0: I mean, it looks to me like an overpriced craft beer you get on these overpriced pubs. That yeah. Just it, just it, just just it winds me up because it as you said it's taken away a lot of history and it just looks it just looks like it belongs on a beer bottle
3: yeah it does it's like it's just uh, the wigan wigan rugby like even with before they became the wigan warriors they had the same badge you know this is like the wigan rugby league badge. it's not just the wigan warriors now it's turned into this very franchised it's a wigan warriors badge Which, I mean, Warrington did it, but Warrington have had their badge for a while, the Warrington Wolves one, and it develops every now and again, but nothing to this extent. And I think, yeah, I wouldn't be happy if I was a Wigan fan. I don't think my dad is particularly.
0: Moving over to Australia and the State of Origins games, can you explain for our listeners what they are and explain to me why they're not glorified friendlies?
3: Saying that the State of Origins is a friendly is like saying England versus Wales or the old firm Derby is a friendly. This is a violent game. Like you can Google or YouTube State of Origin fights, and they're like twenty minutes long. They're just scrapping, and most of these are against their own teammates. It it's it's mental. So, effectively what the State of Origin game is. It's at the end now. Nowadays, anyway, it's at the end of the NRL season, and it's between Queensland and New South Wales and you represent your state, it, you can do it through for, for various ways. So some people represent it because that's where they were born or they grew up. Some it's where they um, played their first professional game, as in for the team. So, for instance, the big one is Cameron Smith. He's played his whole career for Melbourne, which is in Victoria. However, he was born in Queensland, so he plays for Queensland. So several ways. And it's a three-test series where they just go ham! It's been done since 1908, and yeah, it's just a brilliant, brilliant fun. And also, I think the, the best thing about it is they barely have any time to prepare. They just go out, get the best players in the NRL, and just have them play a three a play, play a three series uh, test series, and it's brilliant. I think it's an absolutely amazing idea.
0: Queensland won the first game, but who do you think? Who do you see winning the series?
3: I have no idea. I mean, like, like I, I was saying, they have—they only have two weeks together. It's not like you have any way that you could build a system or a style of play onto a team. It's literally just getting the best players on the pitch and seeing what will happen. Both sides have incredible playmakers who at the drop of a hat could make something happen. You know, on the... Um, New South uh, the New South Wales side you've got Cleary, who I've been raving about since you know we've been talking about the rugby league. And on the other side you've got a Munster, and they're both brilliant, you know, just as a comparison of kind of position to position, great halfbacks who could completely change the game. And they're the two best halfbacks in the league. So yeah, I, I really don't know. I mean, it was again it was 14-18, it was a really close game. I do think New South Wales could have played better, Queensland played much better and were incredible in defence. So I have no idea. I imagine it will be 2-1 to somebody. I think, you know, both sides take it will take one game. And if I had to put myself out on the line without really knowing, just because Queensland have really dominated in recent years, I'm going to go with New South Wales.
0: Okay. Uh, uh, we're In three weeks' time, we'll uh, look back on that and see if you're correct. Thank no. you, Robert. <laughs> that has been Robert's Rugby Roundup. And now it's time for Fleming's Fighters. Thank you, everyone. And uh, I'm now joined by Ben Fleming, who is our resident boxing expert. Uh, let's start off with the Devin Haney fight. He beat Gamboa. Does he set up a unification fight with Lopez for the undisputed lightweight, cha- lightweight championship of the world? And who do you think will win this fight?
4: I mean, first of all, thank you for that um, unbelievable intro, which I was not expecting. Um, but, yeah, uh, Haney-Gamboa, this was... Pretty straightforward. I think Gamboa carries a name, but um, not a whole lot else. He lost to Javonte Davis. He's he's ageing quite considerably. I think that was uh, 17 years in age gap. I think Devin Haley's turning 22. Gambo is now 39. Um, good performance from him. One on the scorecard, essentially one all bar one or two rounds. Um, do I think, I mean, he holds the, it's, you know, boxing quality is all very confusing. Essentially, he holds... The WBC, inter- he, he's a WBC world champion. And I think Tiafimo Lopez is the WBC franchise champion, which is yes. a tier above, but doesn't really mean a whole lot. So essentially the fight is there to be made. Um, I'd love to see it. I imagine Tiafimo Lopez will probably have a mandatory to face before then, or Haney will have a mandatory. I don't really know how the franchise work, the franchise bout works in terms of mandatories, but that's a great fight to see. Um I think at this stage, I'd still favour Lopez. I think that performance against Lomachenko is pretty difficult to look past. And whilst Gamboa is a a seasoned vet, it's certainly no one, um, you know, in that top five, top ten of the lightweight division. So I'd favour Lopez. But I mean, that's a cracking fight that happens.
0: Luis Ortez won in forty five seconds against Alexander Flores. I want to ask you two questions. Do you think that, a, that the fact that a 41-year-old is ranked number three in the WBC rankings shows that there is a lack of depth in the heavyweight division? And secondly, do you think Ortiz can still be a threat at the top level?
4: Um, well, I'll take that. I'll take your second one first. Uh, so Ortiz at the top level, I don't think so. I mean, Flores is you know nowhere near the top 30, top 40 of the heavyweight division um so it's not it's not a um, it's not a particularly consequential um victory that the knockout itself was very weird um i think that's something to do with his eye although it seemed to be a body shot that knocked him down um in terms of the rankings uh it's very difficult to say i mean the ranking situation in itself is always a very weird one i mean i'm looking at it now the wbo rankings you have Anthony Joshua with the belt, you've got Usyk at number one, and you've got Daniel Dubois at number two, who has fought absolutely no one of note. And you then got sitting below him, you know, people like Ant- um, Anthony Ruiz, Joshua Parker, you know, Andy Ruiz has got a victory over the champion, Anthony Joshua, and yet Daniel Dubois, who's faced no one, has ranked above him. So I, I wouldn't really pay attention to the rankings too much. Um, I'd be very surprised if Lewis Ortiz got a, Title shot anytime soon because he's already fought twice for the WBC belt against John T Wilder. Um, it's just a case of rankings are very weird. Boxing politics is very weird. It it all depends on who you pay your sanction fees to, um, and that all depends on in which rankings you appear. So I wouldn't pay too much attention to it, and I'd, yeah, I don't think he'll, he's going to be any threat for any of the big boys anytime soon.
0: But do you think that shows that there is a lack of depth in the heavyweight division?
4: Um. I don't think so i mean especially in the heavyweight division you know the power is the last thing that goes um ortiz still moves well i don't even know if he's 41 there's been plenty of controversies over whether he's actually like 50 years old who, who even really knows to be honest um but I, I don't think it shows a lack of depth um power's the last thing to go he still moves well he's not he's not ranked i wouldn't i wouldn't put him in my top 10 um but yeah, he's still a good box and you know you you can have these these guys who um who who just are hang around for longer especially at heavyweight because because of the fact that you know there's no there's no weight limit and, and they still hold their power.
0: Yeah, I mean if I saw Ortiz fighting uh Dillian White I would actually at this moment put Ortiz as favorite.
4: Really? But- mm, I think I'd I think I'd still go for for White. Um Ortiz is still tricky. Um, but I, I, I imagine the longer that fight goes on, I reckon I reckon why White would I get the job done.
0: Let's move on to the most exciting part of the week. We've got another Eddie Hearn fight camp, but this time at Wembley Arena. The key story being that we have three women's world title fights on the cards. This really does smash the glass ceiling in a male-dominated sport. Hats off to you, Eddie, for doing this. And please, if you're listening, can you offer me a job? Anyway, aside from my own personal ambitions, let's talk about the card. Katie Taylor fights Miriam Gutierrez for the undisputed lightweight crown. One of her other rivals, Chantel Cameron, who holds the WBC super lightweight crown, says she saw Katie Taylor's weaknesses. Do you think Gutierrez has got Taylor's number
3: though?
4: Uh, well, firstly, I'll uh, I'll say Eddie. I can I can act as a reference for, for Sharpie. He'd be great. You know, announcer. You know, could be a ring girl if he's needed. You know, he's got that versatility. Um, but in terms of in terms of Katie Taylor, um, I. I think that uh, that um, that Gutierrez is definitely still the one. The uh, the that, that, that Gutierrez won't really be on Katie Taylor's level. Um, she's not really for anyone um, in the same sort of league as Katie Taylor. And and I imagine it will be a far easier fight than 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 her fight against Delphine Pursue.
0: What makes Katie Taylor such a good boxer? Because it's very easy to see. Obviously, her record shows that she's undefeated. but for people out like there who don't know boxing, what makes her such a good fighter?
4: Well, she's got a fantastic amateur pedigree. Um, you know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we discussed this card, and, we, and, and I mentioned that a huge problem in women's boxing is getting those women to come from the Olympics, from the amateur scene, into the professional scene. She's one of those who has come from the amateur scene. She carries that that amateur pedigree you know that jab that movement just just such a solid technique um, and that's and that's 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 something that she holds that not a lot of other people in her in her weight loss do so it really is just that that amateur pedigree and that and that just high technical skill that, that that not many people and certainly no one no one who she's fought has had you know her closest fight is being against Delphine Passoon and that was a that was a fight where you know, she was she was dragged out of her technical, um, you know, her technical ways into a sort of brawl, which is very much more puercuns, puercuns, you know, modus operandi, operandi when it when it comes to winning a fight. Uh, so when she keeps it technical, when she keeps it range, uses her skills. There's there's no one really on her level.
0: Terry Harper defends her WBC super featherweight crown against Katarina Fanders. Harper narrowly narrowly scraped a draw last time with Natasha Jonas. Do you think this fight will be too much for her? Do you think this fight will be too much for her, Ben?
4: For, for, for Terry Harper? Yes. Um, I think I I imagine she'll still get the job done. Um, I think yeah, she didn't look great in her in her last fight, but I think she will still be able to get the job done. I think Vanders hasn't really faced the same level of competition, um, and I think I think Terry Harper will still get the job done.
0: Moving on to Rachel Bell, she fights George Gior- Lino Guano, for the vacant WBO bantamweight title, she won a life changing fight against Shannon Courtney last time. Will she achieve her dream and win a world title?
4: Yeah, it's uh it's an interesting one. As you say, she really has been thrust into into you know the elite of um, of the women's bantamweight division. You know that um, that win against uh, Shannon Courtney. You know, Shannon Courtney is one of the one of the women that Matchroom and Eddie Hearn have put a lot of promotional hype behind and have put a lot of a lot of their you know their eggs in 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 the Shannon Courtney basket, so to speak. Um, and 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 her performance really was an upset, um, but she's proved you know she's got fight, she's got tremendous heart and, and power. You know, she put she put Shannon Courtney down um, as as to her fight against her fight the weekend. It's going to be a tough one. She's fighting a girl with a with a bit more experience in in Guenini. Um, honestly, if if she comes out with that same that same um, attitude and that same performance, that same heart that she that she showed against Shannon Cordy, I, I don't I don't see why there's any reason why she couldn't get the job done and get her and get her hand raised at the end of the fight.
0: Finally, tell us a little bit about Rachel Bell. She's one of those inspiring people who does great work outside of the ring
4: yeah i mean boxing isn't her um isn't her full time her full time profession she works um she works as a as a social worker for for over 65 hours with um with dementia and with sort of huge huge uh, mental disabilities so yeah i mean it's the case that she's not she you know hopefully i don't i don't know what her ambitions are but i i imagine she'd, she'd perhaps like to to, 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 to take it full-time if you know, she won this fight and, and, and got, got enough money through it and then obviously returned to her social work later on. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic that she's you know, able to dedicate herself to, to such a fantastic cause as well as having this amazing boxing career.
0: Moving on to UFC, veteran light heavyweight Glover Texiara beat Thiago Santos in the main event at UFC Vegas 13. The 41-year-old Brazilian produced a rear, rear naked choke in the third round to win by submission, at forty-one, do we think he'll get one last title shot, despite it being six years since his last one?
4: Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. It's um, it's crazy. Uh, you know, he had that yeah you know, unanimous decision loss against John Jones all the way back in twenty fourteen, um, and back then, you know, he would have been thirty-five, and people thought that was the that was the end of his career. He had losses to, you know, a thirteen-second knockout loss against uh, Rumble Johnson, lost to Alexander Gustafsson. Um, but then has just gone on this fantastic um, five-fight winning streak, which um, Anthony Smithy beat in his in his, in his fight previous to this, and now he's beat um, Thiago Santos, who who has a who has a victory over the current champion Jan Blachowicz, and um, yeah, forty-one years old. You know he knows where his strength lies. That's that's on the ground. Um, you know with his with his submission game, with his ground and pound. You know he, he was wobbled a couple of times by Santos, put down twice. But that, that old man's strength just just, just got him through. Um, I hope he gets a title shot. There's there's been talk of Adesanya coming up to face Jan Blachowicz from, from middleweight. Um, I'd like to see Tashera get that that title shot first. I know Dana White talked about it in the uh, in the post fight conferences, saying that he'd have to rethink. Uh, I hope he gets a title shot. And yeah, I mean, fantastic for a guy who who we thought was sort of done in the sport so many years ago.
0: Thank you Ben that has been Fleming's fighters we've now move on to Tanner's tackles welcome Harry um how are you doing by the way
1: I'm doing very well, Sharpie. Thank you very much. I love that little intro there. It's got me hyped up for this segment. I'm raring to go now. How are you doing, mate? I'm very good, thank you.
0: Let's kick yeah. things off. What do we think of the Pittsburgh Steelers going 8-0? Do we think they've got a shot at going unbeaten?
1: Well, on the evidence of last night, probably not. Um, you know, I think I have probably said this every single week uh, we've done the show. Uh, the good teams win when they're not playing well um, and the, the Pittsburgh Steelers were atrocious last night, I thought. They had a... Uh, they really had to struggle through that game they uh you know they really had to dig down deep um they did get over the line in the end and you know that is the hallmark of the very best teams but if they're going to keep playing you know like that on offense they're going to really struggle to go unbeaten i mean if i look ahead to their schedule it's certainly possible you know they've only got you know i think the next two games look very winnable i think they're playing the uh the Bengals and the jags who are two uh you know pretty poor teams so that would take ten and zero. but then they get a rematch with the Ravens, so they did beat uh last week or two weeks ago, um, but I think uh, you know, they'll be in for a, a tough game there. They played the Bills as well at some point. I'd imagine one of those two games, they'll probably come up short. I mean, you know, we only have one unbeaten team, You know, we've, we've two two unbeaten teams in history. I think it was in 2007, the most recent one was the Patriots. I mean, it'd be an incredible achievement for the Steelers to do it, um, but I don't think they're quite good enough on offense to, uh, to get there, despite their unbelievable defense at the moment.
0: I mean, I have to disagree with you there. I think they will go unbeaten. I've got. They've only really got the Baltimore Ravens, who are to face, who are of any trouble, in my opinion. So I think. Uh, they so beat, that's true. Yeah, the, the schedule, schedule looks, looks good. If they beat the Baltimore Ravens, I think they will go unbeaten. Anyway, they won a hard-fought contest against the Dallas Cowboys. Do we think that the head coach Mike McCarthy and the defensive coordinator so Mike know that the Cowboys will get sacked? The really worrying sign is, is was that the Cowboys' defense never really gave up. We we never quit. We don't quit. Cowboy defensive end Everson Griffin said Sunday. So that's it. Do we think Dallas will really struggle now and end up with a good draft pick?
1: Well, I'll, I'll go to your first point um, first, Sharpie. That question about Mike McCarthy and uh, the defensive coordinator Mike Nolan. Um, it's very difficult, really. It's up to Jerry Jones, I suppose. You know, he's he's quite a stubborn guy, and I think it would uh, <clears throat> he's he's quite a proud man as well. So I think it would take quite a lot. For him to suddenly admit that he's made a big mistake over the off season in employing Mike McCarthy, you know, he's only been in charge of uh, eight or nine games and um, the Cowboys. I think you know, it'd be a, quite a tough pill to swallow for Jerry Jones. I think he probably has to really. I think what most worried me, having you know, reading about some of the players, they've said that uh, the Mike McCarthy, they they're struggling to work with him, and they don't really enjoy working with him. You know, if the players aren't you know uh, are enjoying it, then uh, you're in for a, quite a tough season. I mean, I don't think they're going to win many more games this year um and exactly know your point about the draft pick going on to that um yeah it's difficult as an american footballer it's not really in your interest tank it's more in the organizations um so as a, as a player you know as much as you may want to have have a star player from a draft pick it's not in your interest to play badly you know this is your livelihood. this is your job if you start playing badly why would, why would an organization pay you if you're coming up to be a free agent you know you've got a family to provide for and you've got a career to uh to keep going with so I think you know all the defensive players they're going to keep working their hardest the same with the offense but um you know as much as the the Cowboys may want them to uh to lose a few more games and end up with um you know a potential top pick uh, I don't I don't know if the uh the rest of the team will, will play ball I mean an interesting point about a good draft pick you know I think at the moment they are projected for a pretty low one or a pretty high one rather um you know will they go for a quarterback we've talked about Dak Prescott on this show quite a lot and uh, whether they'll pay him, you know, they'll they'll be have a, they'll have a nice choice if they're in the top three picks. They'll have a, a Justin Fields or a Trey Lance type quarterback that they may go for because he'll be a lot cheaper than uh, than Dak Prescott will be.
0: Let's talk about Dalvin Cook. We raved about him last week, and he's only gone and had a t- another two hundred yard game. I think we should rave about him each week because he then might have another two hundred yard game. Um, what makes him such a special player?
1: Yeah, I think we should probably have a Dalvin Cook segment and just talk about what he's uh, what he's done each week because he's just been absolutely magnificent. Um, I think he's you know he's very fortunate Dalvin Cook. He's got the the perfect storm of talent meeting opportunity in Minnesota. You know they uh, they give him the keys to the offense. He's allowed to do whatever he wants. Really, he's uh, I think only four players in the league have touched the ball more than him this year, among running backs certainly. Anyway. Um, but you know, this is it's probably a chicken and egg situation. He's probably given the ball so much because he is so talented. Um, it's, he's an interesting case, really, because if you look at him, he's not—he's no quicker than uh, you know than most uh, running backs. He's not perhaps like a Derrick Henry kind of behemoth. He doesn't bulldoze through people. But what he does have is toughness—you know—and toughness in uh, you know, and and abundance. He's fought through um some serious injuries. I think in his debut season, he did his ACL, and you think for most players, that would probably do them for their career. But he's fought back and i think he's just got incredible play through tackles you know if he gets hit he keeps moving no one in the league i think has more uh, yards after contact than at Dalvin cook he averages 3.57 times 3.57 yards every time he's hit he keeps on moving through the tackles um, so that's absolutely exceptional uh, yeah no, after, i think he's 238 more yards than expected so you know, that means when someone's expected to tackle him he just keeps on going and i, I think that toughness, that toughness really, really makes him, makes him a, you know such an, an elite player, player.
0: My game of the week was the Dolphins versus the Cardinals, Tua versus Kyle Murray. What a show they put on for us. Tua is a left-handed throw of the ball. Why are they so rare in the NFL? Why don't we see more of them?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you are. you mentioned this question to me before the show, Sharpie, and I'm glad you did because I did need to do a bit of research into this and I sort of went down a bit of a, a rabbit hole, really, and was looking at uh, why we have so few left-handed quarterbacks. I'll, I'll start with a question for you, Sharpie. So before Tua came into the league, over the last two seasons, there have been 90 quarterbacks that have been registered um, to, to, to play for a team. Do you know how many left-handed quarterbacks have been? Zero. Zero. Absolutely zero. It's absolutely extraordinary. And then, you know, in the United States, 12 percent of the population are left-handed. So you know that would put us on target for about nine or ten quarterbacks in the league should you know theoretically and you know statistically be left-handed, but they are not. So over the last few years, zero, which is quite remarkable. So I looked at what the reasons for this, um, and you know orthodox and conventional wisdom suggested that it's because most of these are recruits to play baseball. You know, so 26% of major league pitchers are left-handers, which of course is double the amount we, we of the, the US population. And the reason for this is because in baseball, they're, they're seen as much more important, much more integral to the sport. There's much more an advantage being left-handed than in football, where it's actually seen as a bit of a burden. And the reason it's seen as a burden is because for a coach, if you're used to coaching right-handed players, if you're right-handed yourself... You have to kind of invert everything. And so when you're talking, it's much harder to give ideas and tips and talking about you know quarterback mechanics if they're left-handed. Um, and also if you're a receiver, definitely, it's actually in some ways harder to catchable if you know the spiral is going the other way, the angle it's thrown from is a bit different. So this means that teams are quite reluctant to uh, to bring a left-handed player in unless they're, you know, far greater than average, unless they really give them no choice. You know, if you're an offensive coordinator, you have to change all of your schemes because of the angles. Um and so really for organisations, the question is, are they worth the hassle? It's the same you know, high school, college and, Ameri- and um, you know, the NFL level. A left-handed quarterback really has to be outstanding. And someone like Tua Tungabaloa, he is. Um, and so that's why he's managed to get into the league. But over the last few years, there really haven't been that outstanding candidate. Um, but anyway, so my research kept going with this. And it's actually led me down to the idea of not just um, perhaps practical reasons, but also just the biology of it as well. So the idea of left brain and right brain. Um, and I found out there's a subtle difference between you know people who are throw right-handed are controlled by their left brain, and people who throw left-handed are controlled by their right brain. I won't bore you with all of it, but basically what I found out was those who are right-handed and throw their left brain actually are better suited to what are called ballistic actions. So this means they're better at judging distances um, based on moving moving um, information in front of them. Different players running across the field, and they also are better at judging what speed to throw a ball at. I think you're a great That is the fundamentals of being a quarterback. So, potentially, biologically, it's easier for someone who is right handed to be a quarterback. So, I thought, there you go. You have a nice little idea of practically and also biologically why there are so few uh, left handed quarterbacks in the league.
0: See, we're not just a sports show here, we're, we're an education show. We provide the science as well. Let's talk about Trevor Lawrence, the Clemson quarterback, for a second in his career. Give us a brief summary of his college career so far and explain why he's touted to be the number one draft pick next year
1: yeah I think I've think I mentioned him in the last couple of weeks so I think yeah I should, probably should um yeah let, let people know a little bit about Trevor Lawrence um yeah so Trevor Lawrence was born in, in Tennessee just to make everyone feel really old he was born in 1999 and he's already one of the most uh talented players uh, around certainly he uh yeah it's very clear to see from an early age just how talented he was um you know, he went to he went to a high school in Georgia and he was absolutely phenomenal there he led. a you know, led us scored the two national tie scores, um, in his four years there, it included a 41 game winning streak, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, in total, his high school career, he threw more touchdowns and more passing yards than anyone else has ever thrown uh, playing high school football in Georgia. So, I think that's quite obvious that uh, you know how talented he was. Um, this, this all you know coming together, and it, was, it led to him being named a five star recruit, um, which you know, those who don't know that's the highest grade you can be given. Coming out of high school by all of the scouts and those in the know So he really was, you know, the, the creme de la creme. Um and this, so yes, so this means that, you know, coming out of high school, he was regarded as one of the potentially he could be one of the best ever in college. And uh interestingly, he was, he didn't start. So he went to he went to Clemson and he actually didn't start in his uh in his first four games there. I think he maybe they wanted to see how he adapted, but uh the minute he was given, you know, given the, given the ball to throw, uh, he was absolutely sensational. He became the first freshman ever to uh, to win, well, the first freshman since nineteen seventy five. Apologies to nineteen eighty five. Apologies. He uh, to win a national title, which is absolutely outstanding that season. They were undefeated, Clemson. You know, he really made a name for himself. He came onto the scene, um, and then he kept there going into the next year. Um, they did unfortunately lose in the final, Clemson. Um, but if you bring all that together, his total college career so far, he said. Two, four seasons and we're in the middle of his third at the moment he's played 31 games for Clemson and he's only lost one um which is outstanding it shows his testament to his leadership as well as his physical qualities which are you know in abundance he's six foot six so he's a big a big guy he can see over the pocket very well he's also very fast and agile he's a talented runner he's a tough runner as well he can get hit and keep moving um but most of all he's just an unbelievable throw of the football. Um, you know he can make any throw. He's got fantastic arm talent. He can throw a ball down the field. He can throw it in between the numbers with great pace. He's very intelligent. Um, and you know, the main reason he's touted as being number one is because not many people can find any weaknesses. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure I can't find many either. So that's a bit about Trevor Lawrence and why he, you know, will almost definitely, perhaps barring injury, be the number one pick by um, come 2021 draft.
0: We've got a new feature on the show, and this is Tanner Tackles. And this is where we get the name of the segment from. And this time it's going to be tackling the quarterbacks. Here's to tell me all the starting quarterbacks this week, Harry. Now let's start with Green Bay. Who's the the Green Bay quarter starting quarterback?
1: Uh, That's Aaron Rodgers.
0: San Francisco 49ers.
1: Well, it's normally Jimmy Garoppolo, but I think he's injured at the moment. So they're starting Nick Mullins, I think. Correct.
0: Denver Broncos.
1: That's true lock.
0: Correct. Atlanta.
1: Oh, I can't get this one for you, Sharpie. This is uh, Atlanta. This is Atlanta quarterback Matt Ryan.
0: Correct. Seattle Seahawks.
1: Uh, that's my favorite player in the league. I think Russell Wilson.
0: Buffalo Bills.
1: That would be Josh Allen.
0: Correct. Baltimore Ravens.
1: That is Lamar Jackson.
0: Indianapolis Colts.
1: That's Philip Rivers. I'm just going to pause you for a second, Sharpie. I'm being distracted by a lovely looking dog on uh, on Luke's screen. I'm just sad that no one no one listening can see it, but. Uh... Um, If if I get distracted, that'll be why.
5: It's the cutest border collie I've ever seen. (laughs) Luke, what's its name? This is Lola live on
2: radio. Lola. Lola.
1: Lola.
5: Oh, she's just precious.
2: Probably wasn't in the script for Tanner's Tackles. (laughs) Don't worry.
1: I'm glad to let everyone know.
0: Uh, Houston Texans.
1: Sean Watson.
0: Correct. Jacksonville Jaguars.
1: So I think it's normally Gardner Minshew, but he was injured. So yesterday, they had someone, I think it was called Jake Luton, played last night. Correct.
0: Carolina Panthers.
1: Uh, that is Teddy Bridgewater.
0: Correct. Kansas City Chiefs.
1: Probably the easiest one. Patrick Mahomes.
0: Detroit Lions.
1: Matt Stafford. He was injured uh, during the game. So I don't know if you're going to ask me if it's Chase. I think Chase Daniel was the replacement.
0: Uh, I'll give you the starting quarterback. I, I believe it was Chase Daniels who replaced him. Yeah. Minnesota. Uh
1: Kurt Cousins. Chicago. Nick Foles.
0: Tennessee Titans.
1: Uh Ryan Tannehill we mentioned him quite a lot on the show. New York Giants. Daniel Jones. Washington. Oh this is this is a cheeky one because well, I think it's Carl Allen, but he had a quite a horrific injury yesterday and he was replaced by Alex Smith, who I think we should probably mention the amazing comeback he's made from breaking his leg a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, correct. Uh Alec. Uh, Las Vegas Raiders.
1: Uh, or the, 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 the Oakland Raiders, we saying? East. That's Derek Carr.
0: the uh, Las
1: Vegas Raiders. Sorry, you're right. Las Vegas Raiders. LA yeah. Chargers. The Chargers. Justin Herbert.
0: Uh, Miami Dolphins.
1: Uh, well, Tua.
0: Yeah. We mentioned the Kyle Murray. You don't need to, need to do that one for the Arizona Cardinals.
1: Pittsburgh. Big Ben Roethlisberger.
0: Uh, Dallas. Now, will you get this one?
1: Oh, okay. So well they they've 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 had four quarterbacks this year. Um so they went from Dak Prescott to Andy Dalton to Ben DiNucci. and then last night, um was it was it Garrett was his name, I think. Gilbert Garrett, was it something like that?
0: Garrett Gilbert, I'll give you that one.
1: Garrett Gilbert, okay.
0: <laughs> New Orleans Saints.
1: Uh, Drew Brees.
0: Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tom Brady. And tonight's game, New England Patriots. Cam
1: Newton,
0: yeah, and the, for the New York Jets,
1: Sam Darnold.
0: Correct. See, this is the expert, the expertise that Harry Tanner brings to Tanner's tackles. I'm going to prove myself. Uh, let's. Tom Brady had an epic fail for the Buccaneers against the Saints this week, throwing three interceptions for three points. What do you attribute this down to?
1: Yeah, no, it was it was it was quite odd, really. I think every expert, um, and well, me included, if you count me as an expert, really, but. Uh, I think we all predicted a Tampa win, which was, it was quite odd how, you know, how how they got demolished really by the Saints. Perhaps I think, you know, I think it was the early lead that New Orleans went into. I think that made it quite comfortable for them on defense. You know, Tampa Bay only rushed the ball five times, which meant it got quite predictable that Tom Brady was just going to drop back and throw the ball every time, which meant, uh, you know, Sean Payne and, and then the defensive coordinator in New Orleans could, could come up with some quite simple, straightforward things that they knew they knew the ball was going to be thrown they could they could get their schemes uh, schemes ready. They could rush Tom Brady without fear of the uh, you know, ball being run up through the middle. So I think it was it was really that early lead they went, to, went into. I think they were twenty one nothing up, you know, sort of midway through the second quarter. Um, and from there, it was quite difficult for Tom Brady to uh, you know for any, any disguised disguise play cause it was very much he had to drop back and throw the ball. So uh, I think it was probably that.
0: Now let's move on to a more serious topic. Antonio Brown plays for the first time for the Buccaneers this week. Do we think that he should be playing in the NFL? This is a man who has numerous off-the-field controversies, Is has been done for, has a felony charge of battery and burglary against him and has been accused of sexual assault. Is he a man that should be playing in the NFL, Harry?
1: Yeah, I think the way the league has to look at it is, is this someone you want to be a role model for, or, you know, future football players? Um you know, it's a very difficult one, as you said, he's he's a very controversial figure. Um I think you know, with regarding we talked about his, I think it was his battery claim, I think he was involved in something with the delivery driver. He has served that you know that um that punishment as a well way because he's banned for eight games, so he's he's done that. But I think, yeah, the more pressing one is these, you know, these allegations of the sexual assault. Um, no, I think the way we have to look at it is I think he perhaps you know he he's innocent until proven guilty. I think that's certainly we can't just the league can't make the judgment, you know, on behalf of the legal courts. You know, however I think it, it, the owners really should be on more on the organisations. I know they're based upon winning games and he's a fantastic footballer. And um, I'm sure he, he, he will win Tampa Bay a fair share of games while he's there. But, uh, you know, for the owners, you know, money aside, I think that's probably the question. You know, it, it is all about the money for them. But uh, I know if, if I were, you know, a young Tampa Bay fan or, you know, I, I would not want uh, someone like an Antonio Brown leading, leading as an example for, you know, for, you know, I think it, being caught up in those things is a, uh, somewhat problematic, I think. Um, but as I said, I think we, we, the league cannot make the judgment for the for the court, so I think we have to wait and see all these allegations. Um, whether whether he is you know, convicted, and then I think yeah, it speaks for itself. He will he will be kicked out of the league.
0: I mean, a quick note: the NFL have said that he will be he will be uh, suspended again if he is found guilty, and uh, the Tampa Bay have said they will drop him. Uh, that's been Tanner's tackles. Thank you very much, Harry. We now move on to Ella's Olympics.
5: Hi Ella, how are you doing? I'm all right. I don't know how to follow from Harry there. All those amazing cool facts and just reeling off those quarterbacks left, right and centre. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how to follow that really.
0: Um, You mentioned to me before the show that there's some breaking news about some Mo Farah. Can you uh, tell us about that?
5: Yeah, um, not quite sporty, but he's an Olympian after all. He's actually going to be on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Um, which is strange because he is going to be in Tokyo come August to challenge for the, the 10,000 metres and try and get another gold. And it's just fascinating to know that he's taken the time out to go, rather that it's not in Australia this year, it's in North Wales, but he's still going to do I'm so to and get me out of here. Um, I think he just wants a break from training, to be honest. The other person joining him is another athlete, this time a Paralympian uh, javelin thrower, Holly Arnold. Uh, she's going on. So, question to everyone on the floor: Number one, would you go on I'm a Celebrity? Get me out of here? I would definitely not. And then, secondly, do you think it's wise for Mo Farah and and Holly Arnold to be heading there uh, over the next few weeks when there's an Olympics just around the corner?
0: I mean I think that I would go on I'm a celebrity but then I, but then two weeks ago I ate dog food into the, accidentally. Uh, so that's not that's another story which we can talk about another time.
5: <laughs> no I think that needs to be addressed on the radio right here right now Bella, Ben. Was I'm sorry prank? I'm the host. Can't we- just throw
2: that one out there and not talk about it. <laughs> Let's just uh keep things civil Luke
0: before um before, so we can end the show in a prompt manner. Um <laughs> Would anyone else go on I'm a Celebrity?
3: Yeah, I, I definitely will because it would it'd mean I'm a Celebrity to a degree. <laughs> so that would be quite nice. <laughs>
5: Usually really it's lovely, quite dealer celebrities, Robert, but it's uh, quite a star study. Yeah, partner.
3: Yeah, I'd, I'd take dealer celebrity, to be honest. That's enough.
2: What about you, Luke? I, I don't think like they're going to meet the diet required, like, what nutrition are they going to be getting in there? I don't know. So would I go on it any other year? Probably not, because I'm just terrified of books and stuff. But maybe it'll be more familiar surroundings this year. So I, I guess I'm not a celebrity uh, this year, so I haven't made it. But maybe one day when Sportsfeed wins the uh, SRAs and we're all celebrities.
0: Um, Ellie, you wanted to discuss the triathlon news this week. Tell us a little bit about that.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So Team GB have announced their starting lineup for the triathlon. They've announced four British athletes, three of them women, one of them a man. Um, the man is Johnny Brownlee, already Olympic medalist, and the women are Vicky Holland, Georgia Taylor, and Jess Lirmuth. So that's slightly controversial, isn't it? That only one Brownlee brother is on the provisional start line, and it wasn't even the Brownlee brother that won the gold medal in London and Rio, and that's because Alistair switch. To Ironman racing rather than triathlon in recent years, and he's only just switched back. Um, however, the performance director, Mark Mike Cavendish, who chooses the lineup, he said that Alice is still very much in contention. Um, however, there are only one or two places available for the men, so they tend to take maybe three, three men and three women to each Olympic Games. They've been doing that since Sydney 2000, but it's not a promise. They could take less. Um, there might not be six athletes. So Alistair Brownley might not get on the team. Johnny Brownley said that he wants his brother there. Um, emotionally, you want your brother competing alongside you. You don't want to be doing it alone, especially when you train together all the time. And then also professionally, performance-wise, uh, Johnny wants his brother Alistair there because they race very um, in very similar ways. And Johnny attributes his bronze medal in the 2012 Olympics and his silver medal in the 2016 Olympics to having his brother racing alongside him. So if Alistair Brownlee is not going to get into the final squad, who is he competing against? And Alex Yi is one competitor. He sits 32nd in the world rankings. Thomas Bishop sits 37th in the world rankings and they're both Team, team GB athletes. So um, at the moment, Alice is sitting 88. So it might be actually quite difficult for him to get on um, the official lineup for Tokyo. Um, However, we've got to wait till the middle of 2021 till we hear the official news. Uh, Looking at the women, uh, I mentioned earlier Vicky Holland got in the squad. She got a bronze in Rio. Uh, Georgia Taylor-Brown, she recently was um, the world champion for triathlon. So her chances are very good this year. And then Jess Lema is world number four. One sad story about this is Beth Potter did not get onto the lineup and she is quite a new, newbie to the sport. And uh, last Saturday, I mean, literally two days ago, she won the Triathlon World Cup and she's not competing at the Olympics, which is just a massive shame. And I wish they could take four athletes to uh, not to Rio. That was that was four years ago uh, to Tokyo. Um, but yeah, sad that's not going ahead there.
0: And which athlete are you profiling this week? You said that you would give me some clues and then let me see if I can work it out.
5: I wanted to test your Olympic knowledge, Sharpie. Who was the first person to get a gold in Rio? Oh. Jack Law? From Team GB, from Team
0: GB. That Jack piece. Law? Sorry? Jack Law?
5: No, it's an aquatic sport. Oh, um, Charlotte de Jardin. No, no, Team GB. Nick, um, Nick Swimming. I've got no idea. Ah, uh, Good guesses there, to be honest. Um, Adam Peaty.
0: Oh, I thought you said equestrian sport, not aquatic.
5: Uh, oh, did I? Oh. Gosh, Don't worry. my brain's <laughs> um, It's already Monday. Um, yeah, no, sorry, aquatic. Um, yeah, Adam Petey, first gold medal for Team GB in the Rio Olympics, 100 metres breaststroke. Uh, so, yeah, he's preparing for the Olympics coming up. He's actually been in Hungary for the last six weeks. He's going to be there until the end of December. Oh, no, to the end of November, beginning of December for a competition. And what's really interesting is he all he's doing is eating, sleeping, and swimming, which is probably what he does anyway, um, COVID or not. But because of COVID, he's locked in his hotel room the rest of the time. And he says it has been initially very difficult, but he thinks it's going to be such good prep for the real deal because he thinks that the Tokyo Olympics, there's still going to be heavy coronavirus regulations, especially because Tokyo, the popular population density is really high. They have a really high aging population. They'll take lots of precautions. So psychologically, he thinks he's getting some really good prep now. He's really ambitious to smash his 100 meter world record at the Olympics in August. Uh, they, Team GB even craned in a training pool into his back garden so he could practice um, and get his training back up to what it needs to be to compete. Uh, one other change that's happened is he's become a dad since the Olympics. And this sort of, this could have two effects for an athlete. Some people say, oh, it makes me want to leave the sport. I've got other, um, I've got another focus now. Whereas Adam says it's given him a real sense of perspective, which has really helped his training psychologically. So he thinks being a father will be a really positive thing coming into the Olympics uh, in August. He's dispelled rumours that he's going to compete in the 200 metres. He's commented recently that the way that swimmers' bodies have changed over the years. At the moment, the Americans, the Russians competing in that field are so much lighter than him. And that means he's got about 15 kilograms extra weight over 60 strokes that he has to put in. And that's just going to make him slower. And he doesn't think he'll be able to compete. So his mind is just fixed at that 100 metres. However, he's got a good chance. So I'd, um, yeah, I, I think he's got a really good chance of at least getting a medal um, in Tokyo at the end of the summer.
0: Thank you, Ella. That has been Ella's Olympics. Um, we now move on to my favourite segment of the show. Despite all the great contributions that we have from our pundits to any other business, and this week's question is to do with fireworks. And obviously, it's been uh, November the fifth was just just behind us. Who, which sports person would you not trust with a firework? And I'm going to go to Ella. Let's start off with Ella for this one.
5: Okay, I, I've got something to admit now. Uh, Ten years ago on bonfire night, I accidentally burnt my eyebrows and eyelashes off. Um, yeah, my dad put petrol on the bonfire and poof. <laughs> that <laughs> did not sound good. Yeah, no, my mum was really angry at him, but it's a funny story now. Anyway, so back to the question, who would I not trust with fireworks in the sporting community? I tried to Google to see if there were any Olympic torchbearers that um, couldn't handle carrying the Olympic flame. And um, I got a few results, none of them sports people, but Rio Olympics was a really interesting one because there was one occasion where a woman tripped and fell on her face and then the flame went out. And then there was a second, <laughs> and then there was a second occasion where, like, a public protester ran in from a crowd with a fire extinguisher and extinguished the flame while someone was running with it in their hand. Um, but no celebrity and no famous sports person. So I had to think about this, and I was thinking, isn't the show a league of their own? I think Freddie Flintoff would just be dangerous and risky and pulling pranks all the time if he was given a load of fireworks. So I would throw Freddie Flintoff in there.
0: Brilliant answer,
2: Ella, as usual. Uh, Luke, let's go to you. Well, Ella gave an absolutely awesome answer, very well researched. Mine was a purely emotional response based off the uh, Champions League final a couple of years ago for Liverpool, where Loris Karius's hands were so dreadful and he dropped uh, Gareth Bale's shot. So I'm saying I would not trust Loris Karius's hands. Uh, with a firework because it'll probably end up somewhere we don't want it to. Uh, Robert, let's go
3: to you. I'm not happy. That was going to be my answer for the exact same reason. I mean, it, it, you know, setting a firework up, it's a lot of pressure and we know he bottles it and he, he, he has his hand's like, a dolphin would be better in net and they need water and don't have hands. But I mean, I think instead of Loris Karius, I think I'd go with my, my backup was any of the two are laggy family. Because they are so vicious when they play rugby to give them some kind of pyrotechnic. I just, those family dinners would, are literally explosive.
0: Great answer, Robert. And uh, Ben, who would you not trust with a firework in the sporting community?
4: Yeah, I've I've got to be honest. Um, there needs to be some sort of reviewing of the order because Karis is my answer. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I won the show last week. I reckon I should be given, you know, champion's advantage. But uh, who I'll say with, you know, he's also in the footballing world. He's he he's had he's had previous with uh, fireworks. Mario Balotelli set him off in his own house and it all went wrong. So, you know. He, he's got precedent for it. Don't, I, don't, I don't reckon he cop could out be...
0: Cop-out answer out. there, Ben.
3: Absolute cop-out.
0: Very much cop-out. I thought but it was pretty good on the spot, to be honest. Um, and finally, Harry, who in the sporting community would you not trust with a firework?
1: Okay, so I've gone for another another goalkeeper. Um, it's someone who I would not trust with anything. Um, it's Kepa, but... Uh, also, for the reason that you know, when you're lighting a firework, you're meant to light it and then and then you're meant to retreat to a safe distance. Now, I'm sure if you cast your minds back to the Carabao Cup final a couple of years ago, Kepper was asked to leave the field, um, and, and and get off, and and they were screaming and shouting at him, and he stood firm and he didn't go. So uh, I think he'd be putting himself at risk when. Uh, when a fire got off, because I don't think he'd run far enough away. I think he'd probably just stand where he is, which also happens to be his technique at a coming and collecting corners, which is just sort of stand rooted to the spot and uh, see what happens. So um, I, I would fear for his life, really.
5: I've just had another idea. Do you know John McEnroe from tennis and yeah. how he is just famous for his angry responses and rants and everything. I can't trust him with a firework. He, he'd go mental with them. Got to go with your first so, answer,
0: I'm sorry. This is like, who wants to be a millionaire? Um, oh, I'll
3: just, I just come up with another brilliant one as well. Kevin Musket, footballer, literally got done for an assault during a football game. Couldn't okay. give him
0: one. <laughs> Maybe let's leave the legal matters for the lawyers, Robert. Um, great uh, great answers by everyone. Really good answers. I'm sorry, ben, ben, but your one was a bit of a cop-out. Um... Uh, But I have to go with Harry, purely for his explanation and creativity. So, Harry, you are the Any Other Business winner of the week.
1: Thank you very much, Sharpie.
0: Right, that has been an absolutely jam-packed show. I've been joined by Harry Tanner, Ben Fleming, Rob Morrissey, Luke Pat, and Ella Bicknell, and and obviously... Purple Radio Podcasts.
4: Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head
2: to purpleradio.co.uk.